morning, everybody. I mean, afternoon. Usually we do these in the mornings. However, before we begin, I'd just like to say Coffee with Friends may discuss trauma of all sorts to include all types of abuse. Viewers and listeners may find it unsettling and triggering. The guests on our live streams reflect a diverse set of values, morals, and ethics that may not reflect the morals, values, and ethics of the misfit Amish. If this live stream causes you distress, please seek support from your trusted folks and qualified mental health professionals as needed. And also cease listening until you're able to listen again. And with that being said, I'd like to welcome to this conversation with coffee, Jeremy Yoder. Good morning, Jeremy. Afternoon. Sorry. Good afternoon. How are you today, Mary? Ah, well, I'm just here drinking my coffee, you know. How about you? Oh, I'm good. I'm here too. I'm not drinking coffee. I've got some some sparkly water type stuff, but I think that'll do the trick. I think that will totally do the trick. You got something to drink and we need something to drink. Sometimes we need sustenance. Yes, we do. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, why are you here? Okay. So I'm currently a high school English and German teacher in Los Animas, Colorado, which is a oh small my. town uh, about an hour and a half east of Pueblo, where in the, the sort of the flat part of Colorado, the Kansas part of Colorado that nobody really ever thinks about. Um, but before that, I was a pastor, a Mennonite pastor, uh, for six years in La Junta, which is about 20 minutes uh, to the west of here. Um, and when I was a pastor, I got involved with um, activism on dealing with sexual abuse in churches. And I realized sort of having sort of reflect on it, it, it was kind of a painful experience. And even though the, I'm not, I myself am not a direct survivor of sexual abuse, um, I have kind of a secondary experience with it. Um, people that I've been close to have been affected by it deeply. Um, and what I wanted to talk a bit about was how liberal Mennonites also are failing to address these issues in a um, healthy and appropriate way. That we spent a lot of talk, time talking about the Amish and the conservative Mennonites, but frankly, I I don't believe that the liberal Mennonites are much better. Oh, that is very interesting, especially from your perspective of like being a former pastor for a Mennonite congregation. And to be clear, when you say liberal, you're talking about the Mennonites who are assimilated. They're the Mennonites who own their own institutions like Goshen College, Heston College, etc. Oh, there's I'm another one. EMU, I think. Yeah, Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. So I'm talking about um, the churches and the institutions that are associated with Mennonite Church USA, which would be the okay. liberal domination. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Just so people know which specific brand of Mennonite it was. It's important. Um, it, is. it is. With With that being said, what makes you think, like I can certainly understand that you as a bystander, because there is the bystander effect, people can be mm -hmm. affected deeply by things that didn't actually happen to them. Um, 
but you started becoming active in working towards better responses, right? Activism. Yes. But what makes you say that that the liberal Mennonites are not addressing it appropriately? So what kind of prompted um, me reaching out and coming onto this stream um, was a recent case of Susanna Griffiths. Now, I don't know Susanna. She was recently a professor at um, Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart. And she wrote a piece about... Um, she was wanting to leave a, an abusive husband while she was a professor at the seminary. And while there was some support, there was also an enormous amount of pressure for her to reconcile with her husband. And I don't know Susanna personally. I'm just know what I've been said publicly or what I what I've read. Um, she ended up leaving the seminary because they were upset that she had shown them in a bad light. And what her piece was about was essentially the I would say the toxic side of the Mennonite theology of forgiveness. Um, and this is something that I have seen happen over and over and over again in liberal Mennonite context is that the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is in the, in the Gospels is, is sort of the core of Mennonite theology. And one of the things, of course, about that is Jesus's teachings on forgiveness. Unfortunately, the dark side of that is that people who have been victimized often aren't able to get the justice and get the space and the recognition of what has happened um, because they are being pressured to forgive their perpetrators. And I think, and I believe that one of the issues in, in a lot of liberal Mennonite institutions is that this impulse, this theology, this teaching of forgiveness is weaponized in a way to silence people. Well, to my understanding, what happened with Susanna was atrocious. She wrote an article that was published in Anabaptist World, and it shone it it shined this bright light on her experience at the biblical seminary. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was shining a light on her truth and what she experienced. And it, it was very, very gracious to the seminary. Yes. It was very gracious. And the question that I have is, you said you've seen this repetitively in other contexts. Am I correct in hearing that? Yes. Um. Most of it not directly, but most, but some of it has. So what, I mean, one of the reasons, there were a number of reasons why I left ministry, but one of the reasons was sort of like this sense of betrayal when I found that people that I cared about and institutions that I cared about were involved in covering these things up and perpetrating this. Um, and that experience came through the activism and being involved with, um, so I got involved about 2016 with um, a very short-lived uh, Mennonite chapter of the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, or SNAP. Oh, my. Is, yeah, that is, of course, the big organization that kind of sort of kicked off a lot of this discussion. 
And I attended their 2016 conference in Chicago, where I met Stephanie Crable and uh, Hilary Scarcella and Jay Yoder. Actually, I'd known Jay Yoder from college, um, but not well. And we were, I was involved with that group before it fell apart. Um, there was some just personality stuff that happened. And Stephanie and Jay went on to start, and Hillary went on to start into account after that. Um, mm -hmm. But I was also involved with the map list, uh, the Mennonite abuse Mennonite. prevention list, okay. which is a, a listing of, um, with documentation of pastors and lay leaders that have been accused of sexual misconduct and abuse in the church. Mm -hmm. And in that involvement, there were a couple of cases that hit pretty close to home. Um, the first one was not a liberal Mennonite church. It was a conservative, at one point it had been a conservative conference church, later became BMA, the Biblical Mennonite Alliance, and then now they're independent. Um, but I get a call from Stephanie about, could I help them get information? Because of my contacts with conservative Mennonites, because that's my family background mm -hmm. for this, this person. And the individual was a, had been a, um, youth group leader at the congregation that my grandfather had pastored for 50 years. Oh my God. And I had gone to that church and to my grandparents every summer when I was a kid and participate in a youth group, and all that kind of stuff. And in 2004, this individual was convicted of um, sexually molesting a five-year-old. And, but there were other victims who had never been, you know, never been reported. And apparently one of their victims had um, reached out to the map list. And I don't think Stephanie knew any of this. And I remember getting the phone call. And so I made contact with one of my relatives who was still part of the church and they talked and it was incredibly painful for, for all of us, you know, it was painful for them, for the church, because it was bringing up, so they're not, they're not, I won't say nonsense, but they're sort of pain about how things had been handled. And certainly for me, it felt like a betrayal. And eventually, thanks to my relative, we were able to get uh, court documents regarding the 2004 conviction and he's on the map list. But I knew him, I knew his kids, I'd been at his house, I had swum in his pool. Like, it was close. Um, then a few years later, I was no longer involved with MAP. I was on the website just going through and I came across another name that I knew. Um, when I was growing up, I had spent part of my childhood in Germany. Uh, my parents had been missionaries um, and then I had left the mission board. My dad had studied um, political science in West Berlin. And I also had spent part of my childhood at a, at a uh, intentional Christian community in suburban Chicago. Um, and we were never part of members of it, but we attended. It was always kind of like one of the main sort of sort of inspirations to me about what Christianity should look like. And I went through this, I was going through the map list and it came across a name that I recognized. And so I started reading the documentation and the report so my family had gone back to Germany in 95. And in 97, a social worker that was um, had a ministerial credential in the Illinois conference, um, he uh, lost his credential because of sexual misconduct with a client. 
and I'm reading through the documentation. Um, well, then actually, then he left and moved to Kansas. And in 2017, there were further allocations in Kansas. But I'm going through the documentation, through the report. One of the things I realize, one of the things I'm reading is that this, con this, this church, this intentional community had completely messed up on dealing with this. They had tried to drop the investigation that they were doing to the point that the Illinois conference stepped in and told them that they were doing things wrong. This was back in 97. So this is... And what hurt... Go ahead. No, go ahead. And what hurt is that the elders, like I knew these people. One of the elders had been like a grandfather to me. We'd been in their small group. You know, he and his wife were like grandparents. And he was one of the elders that, that tried to uh, push this under the rug. And there had been another case that this social worker had been involved with, because he had also been a leader in the church, a lay leader, mm -hmm. when um, there was an, another, back in the early 90s, another therapist who had been accused of misconduct. And they, the church did not report it to the Illinois uh, licensing board. And they kind of held back at reporting this to, to the um, Illinois Mennonite Conference. So people that I loved, people that I cared about, institutions I cared about, were completely messing up on this. Do you, would you, did you, how did you feel in that moment? Betrayal. Shock from and betrayal. From all levels. From all Sorry? levels. From, from many levels. levels. Yeah. Many levels. Again, this was a church that in my mind I had held up as an example of what it means to follow Christ, of what church community should look like, of all the good things that they did. And here they had completely dropped the ball, worse than dropping the ball. So they had Susanna's, actively attempted to prevent. Yeah. They were actively attempting to prevent safety for children inside of their congregation. Well, it was it was an adult. There was an accusations against by adults that he had done with other clients, but then oh. there was a case. But then also, according to the documentation, there were accusations from young women that they had been molested in the church by other boys, and that when they came to him about that, he dismissed it and didn't take it seriously. This this social worker, this so elder the, in the church. The whole so they were protecting perpetrators of abuse. Is what you discovered yes so yes going back to the article you said i pulled it up i can share it if you want i did send the links in the comments for everybody but it's titled when peace theology turns violent and the importance about that is this is this is susanna griffith and her story that came out in anabaptist world in 20, May 2023, and it is very important because it took her from 2017 to 2022 to end her abusive marriage, and she was trapped in a cycle of violence, and so when you talk about this, what role play, does this play compared to what you experienced and how this was all the way back in like, what did you say? 1997? Yeah. Um, I'm going to share one more story 
and then I'll talk about, about why I think some of these things are happening. Okay. Okay, so when I was with the Mennonite chapter SNAP, when that still existed, we got involved in the case with regarding um, Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is where I had gone to seminary. Um, and there a vice president had, was accused of an inappropriate relationship with a student. And of course, um, EMU ended up blurring up and did an investigation from outside counsel, not following the process or the organization that we wanted, which of course cleared them, right? Um, um, about maybe a year-ish, six months to a year after all that happened, um, a family friend, so an old friend of my, of, my, of my parents had just retired. He and his wife were traveling out West. They came through Colorado, they came through La Junta. Hey, let's have breakfast. So we're sitting there having breakfast in the, in the dining room of the, of the hotel. And all of a sudden he goes into it. And he says to me, what was happening was, what happened was terrible. However, right, we, the group that pushed on this, we were showing a lack of institutional uh, loyalty. Do you think Susanna was showing a lack of institutional loyalty by speaking about her experiences? Or do you think that was the perception from the institution? I think it's the perception of the, from the institution. I don't think, I think, again, I agree with you. I think Susanna was extremely overly kind um, in her piece. She talked also about ways that she felt supported. Yeah, um, she, she literally said, my family was folded into a Mennonite congregation, which welcomed us with offers of babysitting, dinners, and financial support in times of difficulty. I felt at home. She was very generous. Yeah. I just... So, yeah. So, I, what do I think is going on? Because that, to me, was an eye-opener. That to me, I, and at that point, I'm not a very confrontational person. I'm not good in the moment. I'm not, uh, I, I didn't know what to say. You know, I wish I would have pushed back and asked questions and be like, what the hell are you talking about? Why does it even matter whether or not somebody who's calling out abuse in institutions, whether or not they're loyal, sufficiently loyal or not? What does it yeah. even mean? And, um, so I think there's a couple things that are going on. One is I think there is an inappropriate theology about forgiveness. Um, okay. I think it's across the board. The Amish have, have problems with it. Conservative Mennonites have problems with it. Liberal Mennonites have problems with it, right? Um, we, I think, pathologize suffering and martyrdom and forgiveness in ways that are very unhealthy. Um, but I think also that the reason why this family friend, I think, was upset or offended was because for liberal Mennonites, institutions, I, I believe, um, are an important part of, of their or our identity. Um, and criticizing an institution is perceived as criticism of the person, of an individual, of, of your identity. So are you saying there's no separation of the individual? from the university like for example so i run the misfit amish but i am not the misfit amish i am a whole other i'm a whole person outside of that right mm -hmm. i mean i think there would be nuance to it but 
yes, I think for a lot of, of Mennonites, um, their affiliation with Goshen College or EMU or Mennonite Central Committee or Mennonite Church is a core part of their identity. And I think um, that causes a kind of visceral emotional reaction whenever people begin to criticize those institutions. Um, because, think, go ahead. Do you, think, do you think they feel like they're being personally attacked? Yes. Very personally attacked. Um, it's kind of like, I, I would say, like, so when I was active duty, and this was many, 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 many moons ago, there was a yeah. group of protesters outside of the gate because I was part of the army. They were protesting the army. They were calling us baby killers. Mm-hmm. But the way that I looked at that is like, yes, I'm a part of this institution. But no, they're not talking about me necessarily, because that has not been something that I've done. Yes, there are are people inside of every group of people that commit crimes, right? But when we have this identity that is tied up in and our worth and our value comes from being part of the army, then at that point, I would take that very, very personal. Am, am I understanding this correctly? Like, isn't that kind of what what they're doing here? I think so. I think I think there's a lack of separation between um, the institution and people's sort of how they understand their place in the world. Um, yeah, and I, I've thought about you know why that might be. I'm not a historian, so take this all as a grain of salt. But I think. Um, so progressive Mennonitism, liberal Mennonites kind of emerged during the progressive era in the sort of late 19th and early 20th century in which um, progressives, liberals believe that the way to deal with um, society's problems was to build good institutions to help deal with it, right? Goshen College, you know, emerged in the end of the 19th century. Um, in the early 20th century, you know, we got the beginning of the Eastern Mennonite College. You've got Mennonite Central Committee in the 1930s in response to the, the famine, the Stalinistic famine in Ukraine. You've got all this institution building and what we are doing, we're doing good in the world. You also then have World War II and you have the Vietnam War where you have a couple of generations that part of their sort of core experience as young people is doing voluntary service, alternative service to the military. So there is a service ethic, right? We are here to help other people and we are doing good in the world and we're the good guys, right? We're then the social justice, liberal, good guys doing good stuff. And so when you call that into question and you say, hey, here's a place where the institution is messing up, it's, I think, seen as a personal attack. Okay. So then how does that relate to Dr. Jeanette Harder? So I don't know much about th- that situation other than what I have sort of seen public comments. Um, you can correct me, but my understanding is Jeanette Harder is at Goshen College. She's a sociologist. No, she is a social work services professor. Okay. She has at, a PhD Go- in social work services. So with that in mind, why would she endorse the sacred subjects and 
the unlicensed facilities as recommended resources? See, I think, see, I, I don't really know. I think there's some ignorance going on there and a lack of understanding on her part. But I would say that the doubling down and protection of her is probably related to this sort of resistance to any kind of criticism against the institution. But don't you think that when we have healthy criticism, we can take stock of like our actions and potentially do better in the future? Absolutely. But I think there's a lack of self-awareness, honestly. Um, I mean, I think across the board right now, it's a difficult time for institutions. There's a lot of lack of trust, um, not just because of the, of the church, but just overall in our society right now, because people have messed up, people are being cut out, people are being forgotten. And so there's a reaction to it. And I think there's a crisis because, you know, college, colleges, church colleges, Mennonite colleges are struggling to get enough people to come. Mennonite Church USA is in the middle of another split, you know, apparently their last um, conference convention in Kansas City had 1800 people attend when there have been thousands, 8000 in previous years like they're, they're, it's it's bloody right now. Um, they're having a battle. They're having a battle. And I think there is there isn't really, you know, change is hard right you have to choose to be willing to change and you have to choose to be willing to take criticism you have to have a sort of a growth mindset and i think so much of what happens is that institutions are trying to protect the turf that they've got you know and the fear of of losing more and okay and continue and so i think i think you know if janet harder possibly what's going on there is yeah they're trying to protect themselves from these sort of outsider critics or sometimes insider critics for calling them to do better and they refuse to accept that because they're protecting a set of relationships and that already exist that are that mean something to them you know so basically what i'm hearing is that mennonite Mennonite, MCUSA type of Mennonites will kind of do whatever they have to to protect their institutions. To, yeah. And it's unfortunately in the case of like Susanna, that was basically um, at the cost of lacking and failing a survivor of domestic and interpersonal violence. Yes. I mean, my understanding from what I've heard is that the seminary was very unhappy with her. She resigned because the seminary was very unhappy that she had criticized them and that they weren't able to sort of take that criticism. Again, it wasn't that harsh. Um, I say, maybe we could do better. Let's examine ourselves. I mean, but that's directness because that's another thing is I've, I've noticed a difficulty with direct conversation within people that come from me, uh, liberal Mennonites. I'm just saying this, like sure. my personal observation is I've noticed they have difficulty with direct com confrontation. If somebody says, Hey, I notice you're doing blah, 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 blah. Can you tell me why? 
okay, well, here's here's why this is a terrible idea. And when you could critique something like that, it's it's like the end of the world. Yeah, that's a deep sort of cultural thing. Um, I, I, I think sometimes we confuse the absence of conflict or the absence of violence with peace. You know, that if we don't have conflict, if we don't have physical violence going on, then we're at peace with one another. And, and um, yeah, don't accept, it's very hard to accept sort of conflict and criticism. Tom says self-enhancement and self-protection, typically they go hand in hand. Got anything to say about that? I'm kind of curious what you mean by self-enhancement. I'm I'm guessing Tom's referring to the building the institutions. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you... go ahead. Sorry, with, with colleges especially, like physical buildings are a very important part of of a college, right? I mean, that's how you. That's one of the ways that you sell yourself, you know, capitalism to to prospective students. Is here we've got really great facilities. And I think there's also a sense of pride of building something. And so when you start criticizing and bringing things to light that can threaten sort of the donor pool, right? People might not be as likely to give you, give you money. Um, yeah, they're kind of trying to protect themselves from that. Yeah, I, I, I think it is definitely something that goes hand in hand. But then going back to where you're talking about the whole weaponized forgiveness, et cetera. Uh, what about the conflict? You mentioned the conflict, lack of conflict and violence. Or, or is it the lack of physical violence doesn't, uh, doesn't mean there's peace. Is that what I heard you say? Yeah. So by what I mean by that is, so, one of the things I think that, that we've all talked about, we and so those of us who've done activism or still are doing it, recognize that violence is not always physical, right? There's emotional violence, there's relational violence. Um, there is, I think, often with liberal men, a an unwillingness to accept those other kinds of violence. So we're in the clear, right? If we're not out there shooting each other and stabbing each other and punching each other, well, then we're, we're being peaceful. We're peaceful, social justice type of people. But what about the violence? Sorry. What about the violence that you just talked about? It's not recognized as being real, I think. Why, why not? Because I think that would call for self-reflection. It would call for accountability. Um, and it's it's really disappointing because there was sort of a brief moment when it seemed like that the church might actually start to address these things. Um, when they spent time regarding John Howard Yoder, right? And they had a committee to look into that history and to draw conclusions about what had happened and to take it seriously. It seemed like a, there was a moment that things could change that um, the church might do better. But that hasn't, that hasn't panned out. 
That's terrible. They had the opportunity to change. They did. I remember hearing from, you know, from Stephanie and, and Hillary and other people, a lot of hope when the John Howard Yoder stuff came out, you know, and it was dealt with. Um, and I certainly remember being at Mennonite church uh, conventions, the biannual conventions where we talked about these kind of things, about putting in formal policies. And I think we did eventually, but I don't think it's changed the culture at all. Why do you think that is? So if they have policies, formal policies, that are supposed to be in the best interests of the victims of these crimes and this violence, then why do you think not much has changed in the culture? Because I think dealing with people's hearts is always a lot harder than policy. How so? Um... It's a little bit like dealing, I don't know if this is a good analogy, it's a little bit like dealing with the question of racism, right? You can, you can have policies in place that, you know, ban discrimination. Mm -hmm. It is much harder to deal with the ways that, you know, we talk about microaggressions and the other ways that people sort of, um, the way that, that the system perpetrates these continued things without officially perpetrating them, right? And I think that's what kind of happens. Can you explain what a microaggression is? Sure. Um, and I'm getting myself into trouble here. Uh, microaggression, <laughs> I it's, it's when people respond to someone in ways that aren't overtly or obviously, um, that aren't obviously sort of aggressive against other people, right? They aren't obviously discriminatory or hateful, but they just kind of like sort of pick at it a little bit by little. That's kind of what I understand it as. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Okay, thank you for that. I mm -hmm. think that sometimes we have to understand that basically if you put in policies, like you said, Hertz versus policy, which Tom said it's said with the ease, but quite profound, it really is. Thank you. Um, but when you put in a policy, but you don't actually enforce the policy, which is going back to Susanna and how they treated her at Biblical Seminary. I can't. I can never remember the whole name. I'm sorry. I know I'm so it's disrespectful. Alpha, it's alphabet soup. It's Mennonite alphabet soup. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I, I, I know. Um, but like, I can never, I can't, there's so many acronyms when it comes to Anabaptist alphabet soup. I'm just saying. But anyways, when it comes to Susanna's experience and what she wrote about, nothing has changed because why? Because even though they may have policies that say we don't discriminate against people who are experiencing violence in the home or in, in fact we support them but they're failing that where's the discrepancy I mean the, and why i mean the challenge is that um the things that happened to susanna were never sort of like officially from what i understand from the piece were never sort of officially like actions that the seminary 
took, right? It was relational. It was individuals. It was people in her church. It was people in the seminary. Out, you know, it wasn't like something that the seminary did um, until she spoke out, and and then they were upset that she'd spoken out. Right, which is a form of violence towards her. But then, Absolutely. are you aware that? somebody and i believe this is publicly talked about on facebook that somebody who is the husband of a sitting professor at biblical seminary reached out to the father of somebody else who has been supporting susanna to try to get you know this woman under control because do you think that I plays know. a role in it? Oh, oh, totally. It's 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 again. It's this unwillingness to deal with conflict, and which leads to sort of passive aggressive kinds of behavior. Um, you know, not talking to her directly, but trying to get somebody else to rein her back in. Like that's yeah, that's not unusual. Like, so when that happened, are you aware that? The seminary has now decided to send an apology letter to Susanna. I have not heard that, but that's, I think, a positive thing. I would, we I hope. would say that we hope, we hope it's a positive thing, but I mean, the damage has already been done, you know, and the seminary could have responded in ways that were much more constructive and wouldn't have blown this thing up in a way that it's blown up. Well, I mean, the article itself wasn't even, like like you said, specifically targeting the seminary. That's that's no, the interesting part to me. is like, it wasn't specifically targeting the seminary. And they took that as like, all of these things. And she had consequences for speaking about something that she experienced that wasn't even necessarily the college. And And that's... That's where if we begin to understand that people at the seminary understood it as a personal attack against them when you criticize or even imply criticism against the institution, then all this begins to make sense. Then all this behavior begins to, to, to make sense to me. Okay. So basically, how do you address that? How do you change that kind of culture? What would be effective? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I mean, I'm not in ministry anymore. I, you know, I had a friend recently tell me, he says, it's okay for you to be angry at God, but I'm not angry at God. God didn't cause this. God didn't do this. I'm angry at the church. Um, so I'm not in the system anymore, really, in a way that I was six or seven years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I don't think change happens until the cost of not doing something is greater than the cost of doing something. I think you're right on that, but also what makes the cost of not doing something greater than the cost of doing like, I'm sorry. I think I reverse that, but yeah. But, well, I think, I think one of the things I realized that um, one of the few tools that activists have is shame to shame the institutions to embarrass them, I mean, and speaking out because there's such a hyper 
sensitivity about how they're perceived because it affects their donor base, because it affects their esteem, their self-esteem and, um, and identity. Like shame is a very powerful tool. Wow. So you, what I'm hearing you say is external pressure. Yes. I don't think it's going to come from the inside. I think it's going to come from the outside. Now there will be people in the institution who, who might will work. help. Right. Who will work. But my experience also is often these people, well-meaning, often very, very well-meaning, are limited in what they can do. Um, because they also have to maintain their set of relationships that they have with other people. That's what I experienced as a pastor. When I was a pastor, I was less likely to speak out directly about these kinds of things in public because I had to worry about my relationships with you know, my, conf- my conference minister and other pastors and then my church and my congregation. And like those relationships were important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so people that are working on the inside Allies on the inside are important, but often I think there are limits unless you can get leadership really, you know, or there's such a, there's such a groundswell of, of people being angry and upset that it forces the institution to change. I don't see how change happens. I think for me, what I, what I've observed throughout the many years I've spoken is that when you start have applying external pressure, people from within find themselves working towards change. But you're right in that they're very limited. That's why the external pressure is so critically important. Because when you have that external pressure and the knowledge, first off, when you talk about these stories and when you talk about this type of scenario that kind of creates a perfect storm for institutions to cover up abuse and abusive people that may be employed there, just think Heston College. When you do that, you you have to understand that The problem cannot exist when you are silent. Those issues of them having abusers employed at these institutions or in places of leadership or ministry, etc., cannot exist unless you tell your stories and you talk about it. Therefore, silence is actually violence, like Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. said, I believe. It is actually violence in these cases because it is denying the existence of these situations that happen where abuse survivors are further traumatized by the responses of the people within the institutions and the churches. And so using your voice is important, which is where when Susanna talked about it, she was shining a light and saying, this happens. But if we have such institutional loyalty and the idea that the lack of conflict is peace, do we even truly understand what peace is? And do we have the capacity to begin evolving and changing what our institution does. 
I would agree with all that. Yes, I think. Um, I mean, you know, we're, what was interesting about you know, a movement for change that was successful um, was, you know, the Pink Menno movement in the Mennonite Church USA, right? Pink Menno was, uh, it was, it was a group that was started by uh, Luke Yoder and Jay Yoder, brother and sister. Again, I went to college with them where they were pressuring and, and others, others got involved, but I think they were the, some of the earliest instigators um, to protest at biannual convention by singing hymns and being present. And what happened over time was that the movement to force change, to pressure change, stopped being to serve an external thing and an internal thing, right? More and more Mennonites were willing to step up and identify themselves as allies and supporters of LGBTQ Christians, Mennonites, and saying the church needs to change all this. And from my vantage point, MCUSA maybe didn't do everything to prevent this from happening, but did a lot to try to prevent this from happening. Oh, I think we lost Jeremy. Well, I'm, I'm um, sorry, my foot's rang. I'm here. I'm you're, back. Um, and it got back. to the point where, um, thank you. Um, so what, what originally started out as sort of external pressure became eternal pressure. And mm -hmm. there were enough um, enough supporters that the denomination had to change. And of course, the denomination has paid a huge cost, right? There's been a number of conferences, Southeast conferences, the most recent one to leave now, um, or Southeastern conference. But yeah, it got to the point where not, where choosing not to change cost the denomination greater than, than changed it. So, going back to that, so some of the things that are effective when lobbying MCUSA for change is publicly showing up at their conferences and protesting for the things you want. I wonder, do you think it is possible that someday a group of survivors will protest at MCUSA's conference? It does occur to me. Absolutely. I no. totally, like, I am not playing. If that happens and I have money and time to do so, I would be happy to protest with y'all. And in some ways, it was it was a kind of a low-key protest. Like, they dressed in pink and they sang hymns. And mm -hmm. that upset so many people. Like, that was really I unnerving. I will not sing hymns. I'm just saying. I will even wear pink, and I don't wear pink. Right. But, yeah, I, I, I think... Um, what well, was really kind of like, I one time told, so Urban Stutzman, who was a former, um, I don't know if he was moderator, but he was head of, of MCUSA for a while, uh, was my preaching professor. And I remember telling him like that, you know, one thing that was sort of ironic was um, when I was going to college at Goshen College in the 90s and we're taking, we had to take, you know, classes on theology and stuff. And they were talking about social justice things. And how you how you sort of lobby and influence government for justice and peace, like we took my generation took those lessons and applied them to the church. Um, so let's do it. And the church was let's not ready it, for Jeremy. it. Jeremy, <laughs> yeah, they weren't ready for let's, it. But I think that is I think that is something that is a valid way of getting change to happen. I'm, I'm just church, saying it's shown effective to a point. To a point. 
the church needs to understand that its stakeholders are mad and upset and don't want things to continue. Not in that way. Not in that way. Not in that way. I'm just saying, like, I, I hope that I'm alive to see the day that survivors protest MCUSA's conference. I really do. And and I, even if it is singing hymns and it is a low-key protest, I am telling you, just because it's using this idea of creating the problem, making it a visible public problem, is what has to happen. People have started doing that, but this is seems to be almost like overall something that has to be addressed with the Mennonites that have colleges, if that makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, like a couple of months ago, you were involved in these protests in Pennsylvania at the House of, I don't know if it's called the state representatives or... Pennsylvania State Capitol, yes. It was a rally. It was a rally. And so we were very used to like going to a rally at your um at your, your your politicians well rally your colleges and rally the church um be present because the system's going to do whatever it can to resist change right the system's always looking for equilibrium um i used to get really annoyed when i heard church leaders and pastors talk about how hard it was to deal with you know the criticism that was being lodged at the church and i'm like it's your job right you are a leader of an organization part of that is to take criticism. And I know having been there myself, having served as a pastor, criticism is never easy. It's not easy to be criticized. Like I know that, but it's part of the job. Um, Sometimes criticism is what allows us to grow as an organization. But again, That's we're looking for homeostasis. We're looking for things to be even and the same and the system uh, will resist that. Listen to this. Tree of Life says, I'm so happy to have found this channel. I grew up in a Dunkard Brethren church that moved away at 13. Ten or so years later, I joined the Mennonite church. In my opinion, my Dunkard family are not Christ-like. And then goes on to say, I was kicked out of my Mennonite church when I came out. I'm so sorry. That should not happen to anybody. Period. You should not be kicked out of a church because you come out. Your church should not do that. But also, Tom says, let Barbie take over. Pink is sizzling now. <laughs> With that being said, I'd like to ask you one more thing before we go sure. to wrap it up. And that is, like, just just rallying but also protesting and and shining a bright light on these issues why is this so important to you again i i um i myself am not an abuse survivor i was married for a while to an abuse survivor and i think my marriage failed in part because of that of what had happened to my my wife as a child and um it impacted our our relationship it and so there's that there's that's my personal connection to it and the trauma that i experienced the secondary trauma that i experienced from from that relationship but yes. also i think i'm sorry go ahead sorry 
but I also think it's important because with all of my sort of anger about the church, that this is still part of me, you know, even though I, 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 I mean, it's still part of who I am. Being a pastor is still part of being, a, even though I'm not a pastor anymore, I haven't been for six years, but there's still this side to me and it still cares um, about the future of the church. Because I think what's happening is that, you know, people are leaving. And one of the reasons we're leaving is because of stories like this, because it's, it's in the church's own self-interest to deal with abuse in a good way. And I would also say is, you know, I want our, I want the church, what the church says about itself to be real, to, to actually happen, to not just be lip service, um, but to have some sort of, um, to be grounded in something real and authentic um, and not just be sort of bullshit, which is I think often what ends up happening when you hear these kinds of stories, that this ended up not being true, you know? I mean, I can understand if it was one or two stories, but it's story after story after story after story, case after case, case after case, where the church has failed to protect and to deal with in healthy, effective ways um, abuse that's happening in its own walls. And that has to change. You know, I think, I think church is so tied, closely tied with people's experiences of God that it is harming its own mission. It's harming what it says it stands for when it refuses to deal with it. Um, you know, I think that groups like Into Account, you know, are doing God's work here by bringing to light the kinds of things that are happening, the way that people are being victimized. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very, very proud of, of them. They have done an immense amount of heavy lifting, haven't they? They have. Yeah. And I have nothing but respect for them, love and respect for them. But I think, and, and again, I, you know, the, the values of sort of justice are and peace are still my values. And I want that, I want people who have been harmed by the church to be cared for. Okay, so if justice and peace are still your values, do the definite did the definitions of that change at all? I think sometimes that my commitment to pacifism has been pushed a bit. Um, <laughs> you know, I recognize now that again, the absence of physical violence is not peace by itself. The other forms of violence, and that I think because Mennonites believe in pacifism and claim we're pacifists that we've given ourselves kind of a, a way out that is not true it's not true you know there's still violence happening even if it's not shooting each other or stabbing each other damn you you know that's i think it's really profound how you say it, like the absence of of physical violence is not peace yeah I, th I, I mean, think it's very profound. One of the one of the sort of core things in the Bible, the core themes in the Bible is this issue of right relationship, right? Right relationship with God and right relationship with each other, right? When the man comes up to, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and ask him, what are the two greatest commandments? It's love your, love your Lord, your God, and your neighbor as yourself. And 
I think often in the church, there's so much an emphasis about loving God that we forget about loving each other. And um, we don't love each other very well. We are not in right relationship with one another. And you're telling everybody today, Jeremy got spicy. (laughs) I am very spicy. Today is Jeremy's Sunday, reclaiming his Sunday, not preaching, but telling the truth. I mean, this is what I learned growing up, that the core of what it meant to be a Christian was to love one another and to be in these right relationships with each other. And I always understood that there is this sort of balance. It's not just a relationship between us and God. It's also a relationship between each other. When the church allows abuse to happen, when the church kicks out, you know, queer members who are, you know, part of the church, just as much as anyone else, are not in right relationship with each other. That is, you know, I think you should make a meme with that. I'm just saying, we need it to go viral. We need it to go viral so everybody at FCUSA sees it and everybody inside of Mennonite institutions sees it because it's kind of like the truth. We're not in right relationships with each other. If we have this idea of right and wrong relationships and we don't pursue that, we're not showing love. But also another thing is, is somebody can feel, people can feel loved in different ways. And when you have everything defined so clearly as only being acceptable this way, is there space for people to experience love and feeling loved in different ways? I mean, so I, I didn't grow up in Mennonite community. I mean, I, we were at this church in Chicago for, for seven years. So that would have been, but even that, Chicago is not exactly, you know, Elkhart, Indiana, or Goshen, Indiana. It's, it's away from that, right? And I spent right. a good part of my childhood in, in Germany, in Berlin. Um, so I didn't grow up in that culture, I grew up adjacent to it. And that culture has had a profound impact on me that I'm just starting to unpack in my own life. Um, but I never got felt caught up with all the sort of navel gazing identity stuff in the way that I think a lot of Mennonites do. Um, one of sort of my sort of core experiences of what I sort of envisioned as an ideal was when I was when I was in high school, I went with a former East German, but German Baptist uh, youth group to Donetsk, Ukraine, right? Donetsk mm-hmm. is now the area the civil war has been um, before the invasion from Putin. And we were sitting, I was staying with um, the local pastor of the Baptist church in Donetsk. And so we were having breakfast and somebody remarked, hey, uh, we have here at the table right now, having breakfast together, we've got Ukrainians, we've got Germans, and we have an American, an East German, even East German. So at one point, right, we were all, our countries were enemies of each other, right? And here uh-huh. we are having breakfast. And to me, that is sort of that ability to sort of get over these boundaries is kind of like the hope of church and the hope of Christian faith. And that is not happening. In That is not happening. We are finding other ways of, of dividing each other, of, of exploiting each other, of hurting each other, of harming each other in the church. And it's happening behind, I, yeah, it, it, we're not living up to our own ideals. Okay. With that being said, 
Is there anything you would say to somebody who maybe is in the position you were in like six years ago when you made the decision to no longer be a pastor? I mean, there were, there were a number of reasons. It wasn't just this, this was just part of it. Um, yes. I was, I was working, I was burnt out. I was completely burnt out, but I would say that there is leaving ministry was, there was an enormous sense of loss that I felt for a long time. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to go. I went to Catholic church for a while. I'm not currently active in a congregation, but I went to Catholic church for a while because I couldn't go to a regular, you know, Protestant church without crying. Cause it was so such loss. The Catholics were different enough that I could deal with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's loss, there's loss of identity when you leave ministry, but there's also life. And I am deeply grateful for the relationships that I have been able to make since I left ministry. I've been grateful that I haven't had to sort of color inside the lines all the time, that I haven't had to think about all the politics of everything that I say will be interpreted and analyzed and make somebody mad. Like them, to me, that has been a freeing experience. Liberating? Um, liberating experience, yeah. You know, I think one of the things in my life that I've struggled with is the sense of trying to live according to other people's expectations. And ministry became that as well, trying to live according to, like, I was a young pastor. I was in my 30s. I was in a congregation with people, most of them were over over 60. And one of the feedback I received was people felt, they viewed me as their grandson and I was their pastor because they were looking for a father figure. And I'm never going to be a father figure for a 60-year-old, right? Um, To be able to live in a way that's authentic to who I am, without all that pressure to live according to other people's expectations is incredibly liberating. And I wish I could pastor in ways where I could do that. But I think under the current sort of culture and systems, I'm not sure that's possible. Because people are looking to you to give them something that they need and they want. And they'll put the expectation that you will do it in the same way that it's always been done. And sometimes I'm making a lot of sense here. I'm kind of like battling. Sometimes it. doing things the same way that it's always done, you know, doing things for the sake of it's always been done this way is not necessarily the best way. No, it's not. Um, it's not. Sometimes even pastors need to learn and grow. Like, and I just like to say this is like a pastor who you know, has a personal experience with abuse within their congregation, how they respond to that says a lot about them and the person they are. And just because historically the church has not taken action, has not reported it, has claimed it's all lies or, you know, all of these people are lying, right? Doesn't mean that those victims lied in the first place. I think part of the problem is that, again, they're trying to preserve a certain set of relationships. You know, and even in the liberal Mennonites, certain families and certain names and certain relationships carry with them a lot of power. And so they're trying to keep those all those relationships in balance. And sometimes they're not worth it. Um, I think part of MCUSA's problem is that 
There were a lot of more conservative churches that didn't really want to be part of MCUSA, were reluctant to join. And the church spent a lot of time and resources trying to keep them in. And they left anyway, because they didn't really ever want to be there. Um, so the outcome is the same, regardless of what the church does. Exactly. You're going to lose at some point, in some ways. Sometimes you're in a lose-lose situation. The choice is how you're going to lose, you know. You get to only choose. So here's the thing, is if I'm in a situation where I observe something, we've got so many allergies here in Colorado, Jeremy, I swear. I know. But anyways, anyways, if I'm in a situation where I'm going to, like, lose or like if I observe something that to me feels very unsafe for survivors of abuse Mm -hmm. I get to choose do I get to say something do I have the energy to say something Mm -hmm. and then I get to choose what do I want to say Mm -hmm. how much of my energy do I want to give to this conversation if I choose to do that and If I still feel that that situation is unsafe, I don't get to choose what actions that institution, organizer, person takes. The only thing that I can control is myself. If you're going to lose, if you have a lose-lose choice, right? Yeah. Choose to lose in a way that keeps your integrity. Keeps keeps who you are. Exactly. So for me... Often, if I'm placed in a lose-lose situation, I'm going to choose to say something. Because if I see something and I say something, I have done what I can live with. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I, I think... Feel... Go I, ahead. I'm sorry. I think the times that I compromised that, right? When I didn't speak out, when I should have spoken out, when I didn't follow my own sort of integrity was out of fear of what the consequences might be. And I think that's where a lot of people who are in power, who are allies are wrestling with the fear of the consequences. So that's why you need the outside of the system as well to push. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's, It's very interesting because we have a commenter who says, I think it is misguided to expect the church not to be exploitative of its members. Christianity itself is predatorial and colonistic. A colonist. Colonialist? That's Colonialist, yeah. Yeah. Imposing itself on the cultures, people of the world, without regard for and denying their differences. Just because a predator calls itself love does not mean it is not a predator. I I don't think I disagree with that. I think it's often a lot more complicated than that. Um, I think life is really complicated and it doesn't always fit in an either or kind of box. I think it's possible there are times where things could be exploitive and not exploitive at the same time. Um, I think having conversations sometimes with people where you know, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah. It's you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say this because we 
I ask you for your parting thought to like people within the congregation, but I'm going to say this, Jeremy, and you, you will have the opportunity to respond if you want. Uh-oh. In my Uh-oh. personal I've done experience, in my personal experience, Peter, I appreciate that comment because literally I grew up in Eve Troyer and Old Order Amish homes and churches and communities. And I personally cannot stand the way that so many liberal Mennonites of all sorts and types try to minister to me. It, it hurts my entire being. Because I was taught that just because people have a different belief from us doesn't mean they're necessarily bad people or that it is our job to exploit them or to get them to have the same belief as mine. So when you start talking about missionary work, part of that is is absolutely in my opinion as a recipient of it ex- completely explicitly exploitative and part of it also is is way back when i was offered a scholarship to a mennonite institution i can't even remember which institution it was i turned it down because i did not want and could not stand the way that the Mennonites at that time tried to recruit me to their ranks. I am not going to become a Mennonite. I will be nice to you. I will talk to you. I will do my best to honor your space and hold space for you. I don't care if you're somebody currently within the church or not. I will hold space for you if I can and have the space energy to do so but I will not join your church and it's gross that people keep trying well I'm like I mean you're preaching too now um I'm not going to disagree with any of that I'm not going to disagree with anybody's experience or say that it's not valid I mean if that is what you've experienced experience like I affirm that totally and completely um part of it is as i went to a church twice the third time they expected me to make a a commitment to joining their church yeah that, that's to... nonsense that's nonsense and but i think i think i don't know i i i guess i'm not so jaded that i don't believe that there is no Are you call me jaded <laughs> maybe <laughs> Come on, Mary. It could be worse. You could be saying I'm bitter. Oh, you're not bitter. I know you. You are a light. You. So what? But I think the audience may not know is that we actually know each other in real life and have um, have a friendship. And so, I would say you're not. I, I would say there's a there's a light that I experience with you, as well, um, in the anger and the sort of fighting for justice. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to gather my thoughts here a little bit. Um, I will never dispute anybody's experience of that in the church. I, I affirm that and I understand that and I totally understand why it is something you cannot be a part of. There's still part of me that hopes. 
that things can be different. And I don't know, maybe that's misplaced. It is still part of who I am. Um, growing up as a missionary kid and having gone into pastoral ministry and I'm not able to completely entirely separate my, separate myself from it because okay. I would also be denying part of me. Now there, are, I mean, I'm more than just okay. that, right? Like, like we've talked, like I'm talking about, like some people have a hard time identifying themselves other than their, you know, membership in, in an institution. I certainly have other parts of myself that I, um, that I, that, that, that are also me. And sometimes they're in con contradiction with, with the church. Like it's, it's much more complicated. It's just that this is a, this is one part of who I am. So to, to kind of like echo back to you, what you're saying is that being a missionary kid and serving and all of that is a part of who you are. Kind of like how being born Amish is a part of who I am. But for me, I can't hate Amish people because that would be like akin to hating a part of myself. Because Absolutely. it's part of who I am. But also there's the whole genetic component, which the people that say that's um, not true. Y'all just need to go Google the Amish genetics database. You will see it. Thank you. Enjoy that. When when you and I were starting and, to get to know each other, one of the questions and, that came up was, were we related? Yeah. Yes, were we related? <laughs> but then, like, for a long time, I felt very ashamed of that part of myself. Mm -hmm. But then I realized, like, you know, if I'm ashamed of that, I'm ashamed of a part of me. And why should I be ashamed of myself? And what does it really mean to me? To have been born Amish. That's a journey. It is. And I, I, I think for me speaking out right now and, and having this conversation is, is an attempt to sort of reconcile these different parts of myself. You know, bringing it all together. Bring it all together because, because yeah, having grown up overseas, like part of the struggle is you don't belong anywhere. Um, that you don't really have people, you know, and sometimes the church can be your people, but you gotta be also be careful that it doesn't become your only identity either. And, um, we all have different sort of, roles and that you embrace the contradictions in yourself as something good as well. Mm -hmm. Because we, we become who we are based on the experiences that we have. And so then what we do is we often challenge those perceptions when we're on a growing mindset and we have this idea that we can figure out who we are. We can live a meaningful life. We can belong to places. To be human is to want to have a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And you're right that a lot of people find that in church. I've never found that in church. So there's so, that. So the so, so the criticism that the church is colonialist and exploitive, like that is, that is legitimate criticism, you know, and I respect mm -hmm. that criticism. But for me, that it's more complicated than that. Well, because when we say the church is colonial, does that mean you have colonial um, biases that you might need to 
challenge? Oh, probably, totally. You know. Oh. Um, I mean, probably. I mean, let's face it. Like, <laughs> okay. If you really want to get into the, the thick of it, like, let's talk about, I mean, I live in southeastern Colorado. Like, if you want to talk about colonial, like, where I live, every every year, the high school has Santa Fe Trail Days, right, where we celebrate, you know, the, um, the, the, the settlers that came into the area, right, and um, remember sort of their contributions and their culture, right? Homesteading was a big thing out here, right? in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, you know, there are families here that survived the Dust Bowl, right? And yet this used to be Cheyenne and Arapaho land who were removed by the government in order to, to make space for white settlers. And Mennonites, uh -huh. of course, were part of the westward expansion that benefited from homesteading, that benefited from the removal of native people from their land. This is also part of our legacy. Um, so it's, 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 it's a complicated, like on the one hand, I think it's good for sort of the area that I live in to, for the families that have been here three or four generations ranching to feel pride about that, you know, or five or six generations ranching. And yet there is this dark side to it as well. Okay. What about the indigenous people? What are they doing to honor those people? Not enough, unfortunately. And I mean, I live about an hour and about an hour or so, hour and a half or so from Sand Creek, which was one of the largest uh, massacres of native people in the country. Mm -hmm. And I would strongly encourage better sort of memory. Some of my, I talk about Sand Creek in my classes. Some of my students have no idea what any of that is about. There are signs you know, pointing to the National Historic Site and they don't know anything about it, you know. Wow. Well. You know, we do present a very one-sided history. So when we deal with the history of the church and what the church has done, we need to sort of hold both of these things up. There were things that the church has done that are good, but then there is also sort of this dark side to it as well. And being able to hold that sort of complexity together, um, that's kind of where I'm, I'm at. You know, how do you, you talk about the horrible things, but also some of the good things. There are things about me I feel pride about my own heritage being Mennonite, even though I'm sitting here on your your stream podcast, you know, complaining about things. Um, um, why does it have to be complaining? Why is it not just speaking about some of the things that you feel need to be addressed? That's a fair reframing. Because what do we think when we say complaining? It's all negative, right? Okay. When we ask for issues to be addressed, is it really complaining or is it asking for our humanity? I mean, it's asking for the humanity. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm just asking. <laughs> I'm like, I that. know. <laughs> I know. Anyways, we I gotta love, go. I, I love you, Mary. I love how you push me sometimes, you know. Love you right back. Yeah. But, anyways. Sometimes I've really got to push. You know me. You know I'm going to push. But no, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Um, do you have any final thoughts? I mean, I hope what the sort of the concerns, my critique that I'm bringing are helpful in sort of framing what I think is going on. Um, you know, 
I, I hope change happens. I really sincerely hope change happens. Um, it has to, it's critical. It's, um, it's difficult, but I don't think things can continue as they're going. You know, I mean, Heston College is on the verge of collapse from what I, I've read, right? Because they have not dealt with these issues. And maybe there doesn't need to be a Mennonite church. Maybe there doesn't need to be a denomination. Those things can go away. Um, but something, something needs to change. And as long as the church refuses to deal with these things in healthy ways, people are going to get harmed. People are going to be hurt. And the institution is going to slowly kill itself. You know, thank you for that. I hear you calling on the church to do the right things and not just the right things for the certain families or relationships or the institution. What you're asking of the church is to do the right thing for survivors of abuse within their congregations. Yes. So if you're listening to this today, I'm going to ask Jeremy later how we can best help because I need to get off of here. I have other obligations that I need to take care of. But thank you, Jeremy. And also, I want each and every one of you to know you are a whole, worthy, valid human being. You deserve to have safety in life. And if you're not safe, there are resources and organizations out there that will help you, such as Into Account, as Jeremy mentioned. And there's also 1-800-LINES. You, you, you are not alone. I think is what's really important to say is you are not alone and that there are people who care and there are people who are fighting for things to be different. Yes, you're not alone. And if anybody ever wants to organize a protest for FCUSA, please do so and invite me. I would be happy to help you. Love y'all. Have a good day.